you're listening to Appetite for Change. We are passionate and purpose-driven, and our podcast connects you with truly incredible people, creating positive social impact with food. I'm Alina Duggan, and my co-host is Rob Reese. Welcome, welcome, and hello to Appetite for Change. I'm Alina Duggan, and I'm joined by Rob Reese, my hey. friend, mentor, and co-host. What's happened to Rob Dog? Where's he gone? He's not gone anywhere. I'm just, I'm just working on some new ones. I've asked, I've asked our community uh, for some nickname suggestions for you, Robinator, Rob Dog. You didn't seem to respond too mm. positively to those, so I'll, no. I'll think of some more to to no. hold you to. Um, hello. Are you excited about today's guest? As I am. I am. I mentioned uh, this guest to uh, a couple of colleagues at work at Cultivated Community, and, and they were like. <gasps> You know, there's there's kind of like this bow down of <laughs> of, 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 of religion to of, as 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 showcases a really great example. So I'm very excited. For those of you listening today, Rob is excited. I am excited to be joined by Lindsay Allen. Lindsay Allen is the farm manager at the Boston Medical Center. Um, which is a part of the Higher Ground Rooftop Farm. So they run a rooftop farm that supplies food for the hospital and also runs educational programs and tours and connecting community and patients and staff with rooftop farming. She has a vast educational background in permaculture, in anti-racism, has studied all over the world, has learned and taught all over the world, both remotely and um, in person. She is a force to be reckoned with and an absolute joy and delight and champion of Mm -hmm. uh, vulnerable people, of equality, of giving a voice to those who maybe have been silenced for too long, of... The list could go on, Rob. It goes on. <laughs> we should just Bring get stuck into it. <laughs> we should let Lindsay speak for herself. Here she is, the delightful Lindsay Allen. Hello and welcome to Appetite for Change. I am delighted to be here today with you, Rob, and our very special guest, Lindsay Allen. How are you today? Hey. I'm so good. Uh, Thanks for having me. Oh. <laughs> No, it's to you. I'm so pleased to see you. It's great. I've I've got so many people so looking forward to this conversation um, across the organisation that I'm involved in. So, yeah, how how are you? I think America seems like an exciting place at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, exciting is one way to put it. I'm, I'm, let's say I'm glad to be here with you both right now. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> We're so glad to have you. For, for our listeners, uh, Lindsay is the farm manager at the Boston Medical Center, which is our uh, the main reason that we are talking mm. to her today. And we will get further into that. But I would really love to know, before all of your study in farming, before all of your experiences in permaculture and building your own Cobb Tiny Home, all of those things that we will get to, where did this start for you was it in uh, as a teenager was as as a child did you um experience or witness poverty or inequality or where where was this turning point that this was a a goal or a dream of yours or, or where did that where did it all start yeah that's a great question I think there's a lot of threads that kind of lead into that um 
But in terms of my kind of green thumb and wanting to work with the earth and grow food, I, I a lot of that originates back to my mom, who was just like an avid gardener. And mm. we grew up, okay. you know, in the woods. And I was lucky enough to, you know, be outside playing in nature every day and kind of had this from an early start, I would say like a fierce kind of want to protect and the natural world and was really drawn towards work in kind of the environmental realm even from a little kid I remember like <laughs> my mom needed to cut down a tree which and like threatening to like chain myself at like age nine to the tree <laughs> so that she wouldn't cut it down you know like and because I think I'd seen that that's what like activists did and was like oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's how we stop this um yeah. And but then, <laughs> yeah, and so I, I always had this just like love and connection for the natural world. Um, and then also loved getting my hands in the soil and, uh-huh. um, mm. and growing. My mom, you know, had a garden at our house, but she also then worked, she's a midwife, but she also, her friend and her had a small little farm that they one season, um, kind of did on their own. And I remember being yeah. there and falling in love with my first chicken and, um, <laughs> And and I, I carrying it around under my arm and conv- finally convincing my mom <laughs> that we had to have chickens at the house and um, and then getting to you know raise my own chickens and, and nurture them through a, through you know from day one upwards and have eggs and and so I think that kind of um, was kind of a starting point of knowing that I wanted mm-hmm. to be involved with not that I wouldn't have been able to articulate it as such, but wanting to be involved with those things that kind of like sustain us of like, what, what does it mean to be like, to know the source of those things that sustain us, whether it's food or water or shelter. And, and so, yeah, as I grew up, I, I worked in a farm in high school and, Kind of got and my hands in there. was that on site? Because that's what I was wondering, whether your um, education supported or thwarted those those <laughs> ideals. Because um, I know not all uh, schooling systems have options to, to do such things. So what was what was that yeah, like? I would say, so I was lucky enough to go to a Waldorf school, actually, for up and through, oh, cool. um, okay. through eighth grade and then went to a public school after that. And so the I, Waldorf definitely helped cultivate a lot of that. In fourth yeah. grade, we got to go and spend a week on a farm. And uh-huh. apparently... I have no memory of this, but my, my mom says I came back and declared that I was either going to be the first female president or a farmer when I grew up. Um, and so I'm really glad that I decided to go the farming well, one route. one is achieved and there's so one, much time for the other goal. Yeah. Yeah, this is fantastic. I know. Sadly, I sadly, that's still an achievable goal that I have no desire yeah. to do. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I think I definitely had Waldorf in early education, definitely cultivated a lot of that. And then... I mean, I went to my undergrad for college was um, in social work, but right and right uh-huh. when I left, I kind of through high school was lucky enough to be a part of these trips that went and did kind of Habitat for Humanity to different Fantastic. parts of the the U.S. that where it was completely eye opening to me, where I had never yeah. seen poverty. I grew up um, white, middle class, um, mm. middle upper class, I would say, with a lot of privilege, mm. um, and but not a real sense of that. Um, mm-hmm. n- and well, going it's hard on the- to have a sense of it when you're in the middle of it and that's all you're exposed to. Right. You're like, white is the norm and this yeah. is normal. And so it was People so- are suffering in our own country? What do you yeah, mean? Exactly. Yeah. I definitely yeah. had the sense of like, I must go to Africa to see suffering, you know? <laughs> and so these yeah. trips were very eye-opening to like, oh, wow, within my own country is all of these inequities um, and that yeah. look a lot of different ways. And so that helped kind of like open up, I would say, like the humanity inside of me of like, oh, I want to be working with humans. And but I also yeah. still had this love for like the environment and food. Absolutely, and I, they were kind of like in contrast. I felt like I was kind of like fighting. Like, oh, if I choose the route of like 
social work and helping humans that I've yeah. abandoned the environment. If I choose the environment, I'm abandoning yeah. humans. And it wasn't really until after college of getting into mm-hmm. the kind of the permaculture world and regenerative ag of being like, oh, actually what it means to tend to the earth is to tend to humans and to tend to humans yeah. is to tend the earth and that we actually uh-huh. can't win either of those battles of, yeah. of the world we want if we aren't doing both of those things. And so that's what I feel like really then took me towards my ultimate step of like, oh, I want to be farming. I want that to be like the platform uh, and food to be like the platform mm-hmm. of how I connect with people and how we connect yeah. with each other and create community. I've got full empathy there. I <laughs> adore that summary of not having to necessarily choose one path or the other, just figuring out a way that they work together. Um, I think too often we sort of get get torn between those dreams having to yeah. choose and yet you say social work. Well, that no doubtedly helps what you're doing every day anyway, totally. even though you didn't specifically choose a career in social work. It's um, all of those experiences are enriching. So go ahead, Rob, you had a thought. Well, I, well, I was going to say, at, at, at that time when, when you first started and you were kind of seeing those as kind of like these, these, this is where I want to be, was the concept of understanding of the therapeutic idea of what gardening and what farming can bring was it was was there enough knowledge then or was it a gut instinct for you that said look this is this is this is the bleedingly obvious that I need to go down this line what what did it feel like Mm, I love that I think I would say it was more a gut at that point of just like knowing that I mean and honestly in the beginning it was somewhat selfish of like oh I like know how this feels in my body and what it feels like to me and then being at different farms and witnessing that transformation that happened in other people of when you can get your hands in the soil and like that kind of equalizing that happens on a farm of like, Mm. no matter who you are, when you're down on your knees, planting something, we're all like, it's pretty, we're pretty equal there. Um, We're in the, we're in, we're in the shit. Yeah. (laughs) Quite literally. Um, Yeah. yeah. And so I think there was, yeah, some kind of following gut and some observation of being able to work at different places that were doing cool education components to it um, and seeing that for people. And so eventually you spent some time in Tanzania, Nairobi, Uganda. From everything that I'm hearing from you, you're probably more of a student there rather than a teacher. What yes. sort of takeaways did you did you get from uh, the different approaches to agriculture? Were you able to bring anything back? Um, what did that inspire in you? Mm. No, I learned so much. I was, I mean, and p- a part of that was learning was just like how much I didn't know and how, and a lot of that of like history of actually like more even there's like the farming things that I learned and there was like what it meant to be white really and what it meant to be uh-huh. like a um, kind of colonizer in a um, uh-huh place like East Africa. And so I, there was a lot of deep learning of an uncomfortable, I actually lived in Kenya a little before, like five years before ah, the second okay. time I went back and, and I was very ignorant in that trip. And so coming back a second time of being, and, and being able to actually tap into some of those uncomfortable feelings of these power dynamics mm. of, of being, you know, completely privileged to all these situations that I was only able to have those privileges because of, you know, the color of my skin and, and was like highly critical of all of the NGOs that I was working with. Um, and were, were, were you able to change things with using that anger? So I, I, I have um, a nephew and a niece. They live in America. They've lived in America for 20 years. Uh, one's 21, the other one's 23. Both of uh, what you're saying echoes <clears throat> the conversations I've had with them. You know, in, the, in these last five, six years, they've realised that we've been white, middle class. This is what we've experienced. 
Um, one is now teaching in, in Ohio, the other one is in Washington, mm. getting under the, under the culture and, and seeing other things. And, I'm, and, and they're angry. And, they, and each time they try and step forward to try and change something and put something into place, it just gets slapped back down. Mm. How did, did, did you start doing things way back, way back then and, and, and how did we use in challenging, challenging that anger or that, that, those learnings then or, or is, is it only when you've moved now to the, to the farm at the moment? Yeah, no, I think I definitely it's it started back then for me. And I think that there was definitely like a lot of anger and resentment. And luckily, I feel like I've moved past mm. or through, I'd say through uh, anger. Yeah, I used fa- it as fuel. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> phase and yeah. Uh, um, and and been able to compost some of that, if you will, um, <laughs> into something better. And like and bringing out the perspective of just like, all right the conversations that you keep continuing to have and that are, that feel like you're hitting the wall and, and how to, and thinking of it as like the drop in the bucket, the drop in the bucket that then adds and eventually fills and that it's not my job to, to, or I am not capable of doing the, like all of the work, but I can be the piece of the work that hopefully if this person hears it for the hundredth time, maybe it will actually click and that my trust that there are other people's hopefully having these same conversations that builds. Um, and I mean, and, and back to Tanzania and living there, I, lo- I learned so much there. I worked with some amazing farmers and in terms of permaculture, it's like some of the original practices that permaculture is based on come from East Africa and like the, you know, forest farming is around like Mount Meru and Kilimanjaro really originate there. And so I feel like what I, I learned so much of, um, yeah, just of, of subsistence farming and just practicality of farming, especially with like limited resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from, but then selfishly, it was like a lot of like self-learning for myself. And I think that was like mm-hmm. also a frustrating piece that I brought back was like, we can't keep as white people going to like quote unquote third world countries for, for yeah. learning experiences for ourselves. Even if the end result is that like, yes, I've been able, now I'm an anti-racist facilitator and being able to do and have all these ripples effects because of that. It shouldn't be at the expense of the people that yeah. I know were harmed because of my presence there. And so I started, I came back and started uh, work a permaculture design course that was specifically for people who are working in international development. And mm-hmm. so it was like trying to like teach people, like how do we actually enter into this work um, in a how different way? How do we way. listen rather than speak? Right. And like, <laughs> as not the experts, like maybe we have a little yeah. tiny bit of knowledge, but actually yeah. like, what are, what are the resources? What are the facil- fil- like facilitation that we can do? Yeah. And so that we and did that for four or five years and that was really interesting and now I do that's actually actually something that pops up quite regularly with um some of our guests and a lot of the work that Rob and I do is how do we uh step into a space but also facilitate community-led projects because without that community leadership without that community uh being on board and invested and having ownership and responsibility there we may as well not have gone there. I assume that was right. some of the criticism that oh, you felt towards the NGOs completely. That you were and it's like, how, how many times do we have to keep repeating that over and over yeah. and over yes. again? Um, it's yeah, mind blowing. Uh, it is, um, isn't it? And it, it, it is that only way is that asset base, isn't it? And using what the community have and what they've got to 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 build their strengths, but to also use those strengths to overcome whatever challenges they're facing. And um, it's not an easy thing to do it takes energy no. it takes effort it takes time it, it means you you're gonna you're gonna um, you, you do come away sometimes a bit frustrated because you've gone in there and it's not been what you wanted but you come out in the long term something so much better so much stronger totally um, and, yeah and the success the success from most of our guests is where they've applied that process 
which is why someone like you is, is, is here with us today. And that leads into something that uh, Rob wanted to, to know about in terms of um, community being on board with the Boston Medical Center. Mm. Um, we wanted to sort of think about those very first conversations that you were having and what you were up against, what was going to be required to, to make sure of its success and who works there with you and uh, are, are there community members who are, who are taking that further into, into the community um, after they've spent time with you, after they've learned, after they've put their hands in the soil? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's an interesting process. I got brought in about two or three months before launch. So I was there from the not from the very beginning conversations, um, but was able to be there, you know, a little bit before it started. Um, yeah. And basically it came out of um, a, f- a few different threads of one of the higher ups, Dave Mafio at, at the hospital, um, has a son who at the time was like 16, was really into urban farming and sustainable farming and had kind of been pestering his dad to um, check out this <laughs> rooftop farm, which higher ground farm. We <laughs> love yeah. that Go kids. Go kids. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Like literally this whole project is because he, I, I think, uh, he's definitely a strong part of the origin story in terms of why it happened and Good. kept being like, dad, oh, I, I think that. you could do this. And so they yeah. went and visited this, one of um, our farms that we had here in Boston. It was the first rooftop farm here. Uh and just felt like really inspired by what they saw and they had already they already were doing a lot of really innovative things around food and the environment had won a bunch of awards for their environmental leadership and we're like oh this would actually really fit well within our existing structures and they've had for for a long time really believed that food is medicine and have that as like a strong driving motivating factor for a lot of what they do and so um, they just kind of made it happen I mean it's honestly now I do consulting with rooftop farms and uh-huh. And all other projects move like molasses, especially in hospitals, because everything, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's so much immediacy in front of, understandably, in hospitals, it's hard to prioritize something like a rooftop farm. And But uh-huh. this, yeah. they basically went on a tour in the fall, made the decision that fall, had a fundraiser in November, and we were installing at the end of March. Like it just How went incredible. like, it went every, it's like, that's and that's pretty unheard of even in a, yeah, a, a privately run. Yeah, totally. absolutely. Wow. It, it, and I think it speaks to like the fact that they were, the ecosystem that it was coming into was a hospital that was already committed to healthy food, uh-huh. was already committed to the environmental initiatives, like already, okay. it had an ecosystem to land into and it had yeah. higher ups that were, yeah. that were very invested in the process. Uh-huh. So they've drawn out so, other evidence. Oh, sorry, they? go ahead. Sorry, they, sorry yeah. They're, they're drawn We're so out. excited to talk to you. When yeah, you're they'd, they'd you seen thought. a lot of the other evidence that was out there, so they didn't need to see a new type of impact framework of what a, a, a rooftop farm could bring because of that that culture was there. Um, yeah, I think so. And I th- well, and they've also just BMC, the Boston Medical Center has been a real leader in a lot of things. And so they're, they're used to being kind of the trailblazers within the industry for like alternative approaches to health and ho- really mm-hmm. looking at holistic, like how do we care for our whole patient, especially because mm-hmm. Boston Medical Center, like 72% of the population is considered underserved, which means right. if we're really trying to actually get at the underlying um, conditions of what's bringing people in, like we can't just be seeing them, you know, doctor to doctor and it's like, how, what what are the transportation needs? What are the housing needs? We have yeah. legal teams. We have food. So they they really do all the what they call wraparound care in terms of yeah. saying otherwise. It's like they're just seeing patients coming back in, coming back in, even mm-hmm. if you are addressing the one you know health thing that they yeah. came in for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to them, this was just another way to provide wraparound care. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and for our listeners who don't know, that includes. 
uh, you guys providing the food for whilst they are in hospital, but then also teaching about how to better look after themselves once they leave? Is that... Yeah, the the hospital has a teaching kitchen. They and they they have the first food pantry that was started twenty years ago. First food, now actually twenty two years ago, um, food pantry that's inside of a hospital. And so everyone who come, all the patients who come in, are screened for food insecurity. If they're found to be food insecure, mm-hmm. um, they get a prescription to the food pantry. Um, mm-hmm. And so that program, kind of when that was starting, they also realized like, okay, we can give people food, but if if people don't know how to cook it or it's a newer vegetable or something, or they have a dietary, a new dietary restriction, whether it's diabetes or a cancer or whatever it, it is that they might need help in learning a new way to cook. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, we created the teaching kitchen, which is also inside the hospital. Um, and so the farm was like a really easy add on to that. It was like, Oh, mm. of course, why would we not have a farm, um, to mm. partner? So we're kind of the, those three programs are, um, under what's called nourishing our communities. Um, and the, the three kind of pillars of that are the farm, the teaching kitchen and the food pantry. Oh, I love that so much. That must offer oh, so much empowerment <laughs> and dignity walking away as a patient, as opposed to feeling uh, forlorn or wallowing or not knowing what to do or how, what direction to take or, or how to approach self-care. Having those tools walking away mm. makes it seem very manageable. And yeah, I, I, I imagine that you have people coming back and wanting to, to pay it forward to other, other yeah. uh, people coming into the hospital. Well, and they do the the food pantry, especially just does such an amazing job, just even from like the layout of it, of one, they have it. So it feels like the patient's coming in for a regular visit there. You, you have a waiting room, you go into one room to get your, you know, prescription of vegetables, the person that it's one-on-one you're there and they're explaining, this is what the food is. They tell them if what, what part of it came from the rooftop farm, if it's something they don't know, the people in the food pantry are really, um, well versed in like oh because we have so many background cultural backgrounds that come to the Mm -hmm. hospital that it's been actually one of the interesting things on the farm of like what to grow that can span different cultural backgrounds and Mm -hmm. what the 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 place that that's actually mostly happened is like at the food pantry where people can be like, oh, well, this Swiss chard is cooks very similar to a spinach or like this bok choy and can be the translator of that produce across cultures. And so and having that space where they come in and have a one on one interaction and then they leave with their their bags of food, which so it feels like a patient experience and not just you're in a line mm-hmm. waiting for mm-hmm. a food pantry and you're just bag, bag, bag. There's mm-hmm. no communication. Yeah. There's no description of food. And they have the choice. They say they we literally lay out the food and they take what they want from that. And so there's not mandatory. And and then they also do a lot. They really actually focus on perishable foods and and unlike Mm -hmm. most, you know, food pantries that are... This, this is yeah. music to my ears. <laughs> you know, we, we've experienced that during, during the COVID. So traditionally for, for the organisation I'm involved in, Cultivated Community, traditionally we're not in food relief work, um, yeah. but it, it, it naturally occurred as a result and we had a, a huge collaboration here in Melbourne called, called Moving Feast, which was specifically looking at growing the culturally appropriate food for mm-hmm. particularly for public housing residents in, in Melbourne. There's about 3,500 in each tower block. So, um, and, and it came also by realising pretty clearly that the traditional food bank model is highly processed, not culturally appropriate, not particularly good for you, propping up a system. Yeah. Um, and actually, as we come out of it here, short term probably, we are looking, well, how do we, how do we improve the dignity 
that's involved. How do you involve people with that lived experience in running those, you know, your, your, what you'd call food pantries? And so that's what you've got there. And I love that. Like, how how easy was it or how hard was it for that hospital to think about joining up the dots? Because that's what you've done. You've joined up the dots. It's a common sense approach to, to, to the food system. It's quite clearly saying this is the right thing to do. But there are many other parts of the world, including here in Australia, where it's just, you know, it's just too difficult for someone in most of the systems, the, the probably public sector systems, to realise this is the right thing to do. How did you do it? How did, how did they say, we will join these dots up? Mm. I'd say I'm probably not the exact right person to answer that. I think that it's right. because I wasn't there, you know, when I think a lot of yeah. the kind of actual culture of the hospital was created that allowed the conditions for like the rooftop farm to be the right choice. Um, and I think a lot of it, though, has come from the culture that they've slowly cultivated over the years of like, A, just responding to the needs that they see in their patients. And I've also actually mm-hmm. never worked, I've never worked in an organization this large before, but the, but where there's so much employee pride in what they're doing. And so there's a okay. there's a culture, culture. internally mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. hospital that I see that, that I've never seen anywhere else on this scale that uh, in terms mm-hmm. of from like the janitorial stuff that like I'm walking by every day to the people who are doing the laundry for like, it's, it really cro- seems across all bounds of the hospital, which is really interesting um, in terms of, which to me speaks a lot to the leadership um, and what, and, yeah, what and how they everyone is valued, valued within the hospital. And they do a mm. lot of work to really value everyone along the chain that makes the hospital um, work and operate. So in terms of some numbers, Lindsay, for our listeners, how much soil is up there? How much yield do you have? How many months of the year can you work? Um, let's let's give some yeah. scale perspective. Who, who's, because it's, who's employed? How many? Yeah. so how, yeah. impressive. Uh, and a I day in the life of the farm yeah. look like? <laughs> I just want everyone to visualise how incredible this is. So it is on one of the hospital's uh, buildings that they own. Um, it's on a third floor, um, so it's not too high, which is nice because obviously the higher we get on a building, the windier it is uh, for growing food and wind correlates with production. So um, we're not too high up. And we the, the farm itself is around 7,000 square feet. Um, and we are growing, it's actually all in milk crates, which is interesting. Um, I was totally skeptical of the system initially. I was like, you can't grow a lot of food in milk crates. This is ridiculous. Um, and I was like, I actually like turned down the job initially. And then I did research on BMC and was like, actually, this is really a cool project. Can I take that back, please? Yeah, I was like, I, yep, walking back. Um, so glad that I made the right choice. Um, but, but so yeah, 2,300 ish milk crates, um, on there. And we grow from, we start at the beginning of April and grow through to the beginning of November. We have hoop houses on about half of the farm, um, that help us kind of extend the season on either end in the spring when it's cold. And then in the fall when it's, um, cold that help us buffer on either end. Um, and then we usually grow between like five and 6,000 pounds of food a year. Most of that's in leafy greens. So I always like caveat, like poundage of food isn't the best indicator of what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I it's could grow high, all tomatoes and I would nutrient. have, yeah. you know, yeah. and it would be a totally different number. And a lot of it's greens because especially when we're working with the food pantry, that's usually the thing that they're maybe not getting as much as of different kinds mm-hmm. of collard greens, kale, different bok choy greens like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's. Um, 
Yeah, that's a little bit of the the space itself. The space is interesting because we we positioned the we chose the farm for a few reasons in terms of location, but we want really wanted it to be visually accessible to patients. And so it's across the street from where all of the main clinics are at BMC, mm-hmm. which is a glass backed building, which which is just really cool. Oh, so actually, all, and it has hundreds of people who come in it every day. You know, in a non COVID time, that can actually while they're waiting for their appointment, look down on the farm, or they can at least I, I like to think of it as like a whether I mean, there's lots of studies of just even visual access to green space has, you know, calming effects can help with, um, you know, recovery times and all of that and employ happiness. But um, also I think of like hopefully the conversations that are potentially sparked by that of like, why would a hospital be growing food on a roof? Or like, why are we growing, you know, and like that, I think of in urban farming in general, I I think we always need to think of like how many functions can we be stacking because so many resources Mm -hmm. go into creating um, urban farms in general. And so for me, like having visual access or having, putting a farm somewhere where there can have as many touch points from as many people as possible is like a is it was definitely a goal for us because we can't we couldn't have there was no place for the farm to be where it was really easy for people to come on and off because it's on a rooftop and liability so we wanted it at least to be where people visually could have access in to the space there so that's like hopefully paints a little bit of a picture for for people of what the farm looks like I had the joy of sitting in on one of your live uh, farm mm. tours um, about halfway through the year last year. It was yeah. definitely a very pleasant distraction from me from <laughs> uh, being on lockdown over here. Um, but there are stacks of images available for anyone who who wants to to see further. It is quite quite stunning. It's it's beautifully mm. designed and just so lush when it's in in full bloom. Oh, thank you. Um, how is how is this project financially sustainable? Mm. Um, it's donor funded. So it's, um, it's a completely different, um, well, as, as the hospital is, you know, a, a um, nonprofit, it, it has a, I'm totally blanking on my, the proper terminology, but basically there's a social commitment that it has to make to the community. Um, oh, and, yep. and so this really nicely falls under that obligation, um, in order to keep their, um, status, um, as a hospital. And so this project, it's basically the, where the funding pool is the same as the teaching kitchen, the food pantry and um, the farm. We host mm-hmm. a fundraiser once a year for it. And then there's private donors. We And then we have a little little bit of grant money that comes in, but uh, mm-hmm. mostly through private donors. So it's totally separate funding from the hospital. I assume that there will be a little bit more shift in terms of more going that way as the need for traditional medicines or traditional Western medicines, I should say. Um, there's there's less need for that as people are taking better care of themselves, learning more, et cetera. That would be a hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, and in, in people um, in terms of working on the farm oh, yeah. uh, and, the, and joining up those dots again, uh, look, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of social prescribing. So when, when mm. the, the non-medical interventions. So are people prescribed by the, me, the medical teams to come and work on that farm and be alongside mentors to be able to do that? Um, I would love that. Um, not really at this point. So in terms of, so I'm the farm manager, I have an assistant. Um, and then we've kind of switched last year and this year, the model to not really having an assistant and having two interns. Cause we were kind of wanting to 
just have more education, paid internships, but having more educational opportunities, like how do we kind of spread this model farther? So we, it's myself and two interns um, and then lots of volunteers. And so we don't, the, the way that patients come onto the farm are either through the teaching kitchen. So in non-COVID times, right. a lot of their classes yeah. start by actually coming out, harvesting. I'll give a little talk, harvesting what they're going to be cooking and taking that back to the kitchen. Um, and then we also offer like free classes. Uh, anything that's on the farm is free, whether it's a tour or a class or a workshop. Um, and and so the the classes we do like introduction to gardening and where everyone actually you know plants a milk crate and then actually gets to leave and take their milk crate home and just kind of the basics yeah. of gardening and things like that. And then we had for the first three years had a partnership with the refugee center that was within BMC where they came out once a week Um and it was mostly um, Ugandan refugees, which was awesome because they're all amazing farmers and it was really helpful to have them. And, and they were kind of it. One of the reasons we partnered with them is that um, as new refugees, they're they're very they were very disconnected from, you know, what everyone else there. Yeah. They were new. They didn't know people. And they're in a total limbo waiting period, waiting for uh, visas and for any kind of uh, process. They're just in limbo. And so it was a great way for them to be able to meet other people that are in that process mm -hmm. and be able to take their skill set, which is farming and be able mm. to help out on the farm. And then um, they get, you know, could take home any produce they wanted at the end of the day as well. We have, since COVID, we haven't been able to, to do mm. that. Um, and then the other way that other patients come out is um, we do like free summer camps. And so patient and um, children come out on the farm. So we did last, well, not last year, the year before pre COVID times, <laughs> um, we did like <laughs> seven weeks of um, summer free summer camp, which is, Part, kind of half the time in the teaching kitchen and half the time out on the farm. So they get to actually, um, yeah, it's, it's so much fun. I really, what, what miss. age groups would you be working with that? Um, we did, uh, basically from six to kind of 10 year olds and then high school. Um, so oh, wonderful. Yeah. So it was a whole range, um, which definitely kept me on my toes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I assume the, the honeybees there are a bit of a draw card. Um, yeah, the honeybees have been, the, the honeybees are very, uh, they were fought against in the beginning and now they're well loved by most people, but they're definitely something <laughs> that, um, yeah. That I, whole risk, the risk, risk conversation. And oh, the yeah. End, the, uh, oh, yeah. The, uh, Lots uh, of, uh, forms signed and, every time. <laughs> mm. um, and, but they I mean, actually it's it really been really interesting. The, the pathway of having, of what it's been like having the bees on the farm. Cause initially the, the building that we're in is a lot of where the facilities management and stuff are. And they were like, absolutely not. You can't have bees. And so we brought in a beekeeper to just talk about bees and then, and totally mm -hmm. wanted them over. And they were, and they were like, <laughs> okay. And so, and now I literally have people who are like, I just saw a bee on the ground in the parking lot and I didn't know what I should. And they're literally trying to pretend like one bee. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, it's okay. They're, it's probably dying. Bees only live for five weeks. Like, and but it's been so yeah. cool seeing. Pe and then like one of the other facilities guys wanting to like build insulation for the winter to make sure they live through the winter and like totally changing like with a little bit of education of just how amazing and essential bees are to yeah. our entire food system. We were able yeah. to kind of change people's perspective Absolutely. to really caring yeah. and wanting to that to be a part of it. And the kids are usually initially terrified, and then we can usually get them with some honey sampling um, yeah. and looking at like I have empty hives and looking through the honeycomb and get them a little bit farther along in that process. <laughs> yeah. so, so during this time that, you know, you've, you've been, you've been running the farm and going back to your, um, you know, the, the purpose that, 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 that you feel, is it, is it, is it really helping deliver on all the things that you'd love, you'd love to change from that purpose? 
um, you know, what what are, what has been the frustrations of it or the challenges of it that you wish mm. you could you could solve? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think for me, it's like I would love to see it expand onto a lot more roofs at the hospital, mm. so that the actual because the volume of food that we're able to produce is limited. Like, if we look at like the amount of food consumed in the hospital, we're such a small percentage of that. Um, and I think what more of what we have to offer is like the stories, the education, the why of this. Um, and I would love, and I think, and I and BMC wants to move this way uh, to expand. Um, and that's I would, exciting. And Brilliant. so hopefully there will be more of that, so that we can actually be like, oh, we're a farm with a lot of, and we we grow as much as we possibly humanly can on that rooftop. Yeah. Um, but when you're feeding 500 people, you know, a day. Um, which is not, that's not always the number. Um, you know, you need a lot of roof space to do that. Um, and what's, 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 what's the scope for that? Has someone looked at Boston rooftops and gone, we could grow X, Y, Z amount? Or what I for, does the scale look like? I forget. In terms of like Boston in general, I don't, I did have that number at one point because the amount of acres that the rooftop, viable rooftops, and I don't have that on the top of my head, mm. but it is, mm. I think what's interesting with rooftop farming is like, there are lots of roofs that are available and there's like a pretty, mm-hmm. like, then there are the ones that make sense. And I think what's, what, what has drawn me to working with hospitals is I think that like anchor institutions, so like hospitals, universities, government buildings have a really important role in rooftop farms because they're spaces that are owned by these institutions that usually also have a lot of resources and wealth. And so it's all rooftops can be, can be expensive to install. And, but when you own the building, you actually end up getting a lot of those costs back and like not having to replace your roof and, and Mm -hmm. re and then an energy reduction and things like that. So there's a lot higher incentive for um, institutions that own their their buildings to mm. do that and i'm sure that that adds to the pride of all of the employees of them sort totally. of the the oaths and values that they have in terms of bettering their patients lives and experiences it's not just a ticker box anymore it's it's actually that you guys are living it every day and modeling that for all of everyone who walks in the door yeah that was something i just didn't even really think about beforehand was like the amount of employee pride that there would be for the farm and it's been so we do in non-covid times we do an in-hospital farmer's market once a week which is one of oh, my favorite lovely. pieces yeah where I got to, you know it's for patients and employees and it ended up being more on the employee side which was just like a great way to talk to and meet all of these people that are then prescribing their patients to the yeah. food pantry and then also like the sharing recipes and conversation totally. starters uh, and yeah. just it, it becomes a part of everything that everyone's doing yeah and I had no idea and it was through that farmer's market that I finally was able to realize and through the volunteers that have every week of just like how much people were loving that there was a farm on there and that that this was like and the, you know I had people who'd come and volunteer and be like oh I've been watching the tomatoes grow all season long because their <laughs> their office looks down on it and like everyone had yeah. these different stories of how they had been involved without me even knowing that I'm like in this little yeah. fishbowl yeah. on the roof that everyone's yeah. we also have like a live stream video of the farm that just runs all the time into the um teaching kitchen which is all glass so oh, it's in the cafeteria so people can just kind of like see what's going on which i have to often I remind that. myself that i'm on camera all the time <laughs> um, <laughs> which i certainly yeah. took it for granted going to high school uh where i did we had a, a quite a significant farm with livestock etc um wow. in, in my high school and so when i moved from the sunshine coast to sydney and there were very few 
schools that had farm access, it sort of blew my mind that it wasn't just a part of everyday's everyone's everyday experience. Right. And then my first teaching job was at actually an agricultural high school. I couldn't believe oh, wow. it. And it was one of the few in Sydney that actually had a farm. But again, that sort of... Um, uh, the, the value adding, I started, uh, buying the vegetables from the students who were growing them. And Mm -hmm. then I would go home and cook them. And then the next day I would show them a picture of what I had cooked so that they could then replicate that for their families. But that added so much value to the relationship between me and that particular student or those groups of students that then they had trust to learn from me in a different, because I was teaching fine arts in my classroom, because we'd already built all of these connections. It's just uh, the power of food is just, I, I, I adore it. And I, I really, um, I'm so grateful that your staff are getting equal joy out of it as your patients are. Yeah. I think it's really important to like long, a longevity of the program, but, um, to have like investment from all levels and yeah. Do do you you get a sense in a uh, kind of, I suppose this is a bit of our hope for here in Melbourne, um, as, as our collaboration joins up and we're looking at, we're looking at more rooftop type growings and, and activities but do you get a sense in a post-covid world uh, as people emerge from various lockdowns that this that the bleeding obvious again of this being the right thing to do the purpose-driven way is going to be a stronger way do you think it'll be easier for doors to open for people to invest in in rooftop farming and and, and these schemes or do you think there's a risk that we would default back to the easier way to say no and mm unfortunately the traditional methods I mean I I'm an eternal optimist so I think Mm. that I would I I have hope and I think there's evidence to say that we will come out of this with a new appreciation for our food systems and Mm. the and our farmers and the need for like the security that we feel when we can shorten that line between us and the, our food where it's grown and it getting to us. And so I think like that's, I'm, I'm sure it was similar there where you all are, but here in the spring when, when things really went into lockdown, it's like the amount of people who reached out to me was like, I need to start a garden. Where, what's the closest farm? What farm yeah. store is open? What CSA can I join? And I was like making spreadsheets for mm-hmm. friends of like farm stands that were open, CSAs you can join. Here's how to start a garden and trying to do like how-to videos for people. Mm-hmm. And I, my hope is, I think there's like historically kind of two ways. We either have like complete social amnesia together and for after a traumatic thing like this where we forget all that we've learned or we take what we have gone through and capitalize on like that suffering and what we've like learned. And I hope that that's where we're going. And I think yeah. in terms of food and gardening and farming, I think that the 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 other benefits that come with that of like once my my philosophy is like once people like get their hands in soil and start to grow things that it's that that usually continues onwards and has a ripple out effect and that it's hard to stop doing that once you've started so I think like there will be things from that we I think you know unlearn or forget from the pandemic but I do hope that are the new relationships with food and with growing food and um are ones that stick Mm. um and I, I, I have yeah. a lot of hope around that. Uh, I, I agree. I really, I really, I really <laughs> yeah. hope we can, can maintain I'm so it. glad that you're building all of those yeah. resources as well, because in uh, light of us not being able to clone you, hopefully that toolkit <laughs> that you are putting together <laughs> will be able to be replicated, um, not, out, not just outside of Boston, but um, out, outside of the USA. 
um, in other in other spaces. I'm sure that all of the yeah the data that you're collecting, the the patient outcomes, all of that is going to speak volumes for for the rest of us trying to to implement change in other parts of the world. Yeah. And for listen, I mean, just for listeners, Sustain Australia here did a really strong um, uh, survey during during the pandemic around around gardening, mm. um, which 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 adds value. So you know, to to what you've just been saying, and you know, absolutely echoes the messages of of how important it was um, for our tenant gardeners. So our, our eight hundred odd tenant gardeners here in Melbourne, they had no access to their community gardens. For uh, they 16, were on lockdown for yeah six, wow. for 16 weeks wow uh, and we advocated as an organization to try and get those open to allow people to come back into their gardens to harvest their own food and grow their own food and it was it was regularly denied wow um and so when we saw a guy like you see day after day when they returned to those gardens the joy that was on their faces and the opportunity, often in silence, but just to be back under the, the earth, touching the soil, uh, trimming the the, you know, the the herbs, whatever it might have been that was culture appropriate. They were back in the place that gave them quality of life and peace uh, and joy. Um, so we saw it in their eyes. There were yeah. hugs. My team were getting hugged. Even though they weren't allowed to because of social distancing, they were getting hugs and and the high fives and all those things because they were allowed back in. Six, can you imagine sixteen weeks not being allowed back into your garden? That is huge. I can't even believe that. We had a, there were like a there was like a month or two where some of the community gardens, but it was very there some weren't allowing people in, and that was mm. really fought hard. And I, I although in the beginning I was worried. I was like, are we going to open the farm? And we, and yeah. I was very grateful that that we did, and with just some, mm. you know, different policies. But mm. sixteen weeks is, especially, I mean, that feels criminal to me in a time where yes. there's such uh-huh. food insecurity, and especially knowing uh-huh. whose gardens those were. We, absolutely, um, we pushed on the human rights issues, and yeah, to no avail. Yeah, mm. it was oh. really tough. Mm. Wow. So, in terms of that optimism that you were speaking of earlier. Mm. Um, under the new leadership the USA is going into, do you feel more or less supported or what's what does the future of rooftop farming look like for Boston Medical Center and beyond? Well, I would say like, yes, Joe Biden's going to be better than Trump, but I don't have a lot of faith in him. Um, I really don't, especially with his like agricultural appointees. So, but what I do have more faith in is on a, and where I think more change ends up happening is on localized state level. And we have some cool now with our mayor who just got, is now going to be part of the Biden um, team. We now have an opening here for a new mayor and it's fantastic, right? Yeah. The interim is a a black woman and then everyone else who's running is either two women of color and a black man who are all fantastic. Um, And so I think that I feel excited about the, what's possible here more on a local level. Mm -hmm. I don't trust nationally what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And and is that specific to Boston because of the value on innovation, because of the value on entrepreneurship? Um, it seems to be a bit of a, a little unique pocket within the USA to have all of that future vision and big picture um, goals. Uh, is, is that is that part of the? I know you talked about the hospital culture, but is that a part of Boston culture in general or? I think somewhat is probably we have so many universities here and so many hospitals that I think it does somewhat create that. And I think so. I don't know. Maybe it's the underlying competitiveness of Bostonians. 
that plays somewhat of a part that of works it. as well if they're working towards yeah. the right goal this right. is okay they want to be the best they want yeah. to be the best um because definitely like the u.s in general is behind in rooftop if we're going back to like rooftop farming is pretty behind in rooftop farming technology it's like Germany and a lot of Europe is really leading that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what Boston Medical Center saw was like this kind of um, opportunity of like, oh, we're actually like way behind where we should be. And like, Mm -hmm. let's be a leader and then continuing their like, you know, path in leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, we were the first rooftop farm on a hospital in New England. And and it's been really interesting because Boston is known like world renowned for having some of the most amazing hospitals um, in the country and, and in the world that it's been since we started the farm, you know, we're going to our fifth season here, almost every single hospital here and then across the country and across the world has have we've done some form of consulting with that are interested oh, in the that's model. Exciting. And that's like oh, what that's our hope was, exciting. was like, OK, we will be the first ones and we'll create mm-hmm. the path that hopefully more will follow behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it needs like, yeah, kind of the brave hospital that BMC is to do that and create the data points and create the information that because no one I mean, and most hospitals, it's like they don't want to be innovative or don't have the time or resources to be innovative. But if someone's already doing it and especially with BMC has gotten so much Mm -hmm. um, attention um, and support for this project there, they've seen what it's done for BMC. And so they're interested in replicating and it's been really neat. Um, It reduces their risk and fear to to jump on board with a successful model. And I think it also, there's like a little bit of like, Oh shoot, we're getting left behind, you know, of like, Oh, and like (laughs) competitiveness, right. Which I'm fine with. And if it's, you know, again, it, and it's, I mean, there, and there is a part of it that's like, this shouldn't be, I mean, and Robbie, you've said it, it's like, this shouldn't be innovative. This shouldn't be, this is a no da mm-hmm. to those of us who are in this food world of like, well, of course, yeah. food matters. And of course, well, food yeah, is part over 65,000 plus years of uh, food as medicine and food as disease prevention. <laughs> right. right. And yet <laughs> the minority, uh, some of us are going, oh, wow, this is just so amazing and new. And how, how do we shift that perspective? How do we acknowledge? Uh, our First Nations traditions. How do we like? As you were saying, you you went to um, East Africa to find out all of these uh, permaculture originators, and um, how, how do we further build on that education and respect and celebration um, better for our yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so hard. That's such a big question. Um. <laughs> well, we, we've just appointed you the first female president of the USA. Oh, wow. And you have the Great. opportunity to do it. So this is, this is, this is your policy moment. <laughs> I mean, I do. Yeah, gosh. Um, there's like a lot of pieces to that, I guess. I think that a lot of it is. Uh, so I teach permaculture design courses and I mm-hmm. teach urban ag courses and I ref- and basically whenever I'm teaching any of those I always am teaching like history of mm-hmm. the practice and and absolutely and I think that what has been left out of so many of like these practices especially around farming and food is their, mm-hmm. their origin stories and their and you know oh rooftop farming it's this new thing. oh regenerative farming it's this new thing that's just gotten created and like no it's actually and we're erasing its history and we are ra- mm-hmm. and by doing mm-hmm. that we then are you know, perpetuating these continued problems that we, and, and thinking and like, oh, okay, we have this new 
way of farming that's going to solve all of our issues and then it hits a wall because it just becomes this white elitist movement and then and then mm-hmm. oh well now instead of organic farming we have regenerative farming and then it's going to hit the same wall if we aren't actually like owning our histories and owning mm-hmm. the like oppression and racism that has happened within our food system mm-hmm. and so a lot of the work I feel like that needs to get done around food system work is acknowledging especially I can't speak to you know your context but in the U.S. it's like our whole food system is so steeped um, in um, complete like white supremacy culture and and a lack well, of acknowledgement. Absolutely, and I don't yeah. think many people realize how political food is. And right. so, yeah, that's this is a part of my questioning. Absolutely, please continue. It, well, you know, yeah, and I just think it's like until we acknowledge that like our country's entire economy was founded on stolen land and free and labor in the form of slavery that and then we now have a system that still depends on almost free labor the exploitation of like of migrant farmers um and Mm -hmm. underpaid here in the u.s it's like farm work it there's no minimum wage there's like an incredible amount of abuse that happens within the the farming uh world because of that and and all of this comes back to it's like the history that we don't want to talk about and we'll keep perpetuating that within the system if we aren't actually learning and knowing what created the moments Mm -hmm. and places that we're in here Mm -hmm. and why there are part why are there are food deserts or food apartheid areas of Mm -hmm. cities and how that came to be that, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. reasons why that happened. And so I think a lot of that is learning these histories. And then a lot of them is applying policies that actually address mm-hmm. of saying, okay, um, you know, 40 acres and a mule actually never happened. So actually giving land back to indigenous people, to black farmers, um, and actually trying to compensate yeah. what was taken. And, and also knowing that like a lot of like the me as an urban farmer, it's like urban farming knowledge in the U.S. came from black and immigrant farmers yeah. who black farmers who moved who were forcibly needed to move from the south up into the north um, for job mm-hmm. purposes and brought that agricultural knowledge into mm-hmm. our cities. And then immigrants who came over who also um, were forced to farm on abandoned lots and vacant lots and who needed um you know, out of sheer necessity. And then we have Mm -hmm. slowly, you know, learned how to grow in cities because of that. And like, that's not really acknowledged, (laughs) I feel like, Mm -hmm. or that's not like, that's a newer learning in the past three or four years for me of like, of like, where did urban farming come from? Um, And so, yeah, I I feel like I could. I I adore how much richness is added by the people that are valued the least. Like it's just astonishing rather, not adore, (laughs) astonished how much uh, value is added by the people who are valued the least. Even in Sydney, you can sort of see the further west you go, the closer to food deserts you become, the less fresh produce that is available in terms Mm. of variety, the the more fast food outlets. And yet... Uh, in terms of any kind of fundraising, you'll also find that they are the communities that give the most uh, if there is a need that these people are digging the deepest. So they have the least, they're digging the deepest, they know what it's like and they are constantly giving and we are, yeah, constantly taking from a position of privilege. It's... um, uh, I so value your uh, commitment and dedication to to your... uh, education um, mm. in all aspects. I don't think that there would be an interaction with you that I wouldn't learn something. Um, oh, thank is, you. I'm, yeah, it's, 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 it's an absolute joy. Can, can I ask once if, so um, what's, you know, and, and sorry if it sounds a bit of a cliche, but what's your best advice to to my uh, early 20-year-old nephew and niece and, and others like them 
who want to make change happen in 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 the area of food what would what would you be be the your best advice to them now um with the view that they'll have the energy the enthusiasm uh the grit and determination um mm. to hopefully in, in, improve the change gosh i don't I, that's a hard <laughs> one too yeah um <laughs> Well, it's, I, I feel like it's almost like it's almost like it doesn't even matter what you're doing within the food system. To me, it's more like how do you approach it, right? It's like the, it's what it, it it's how you know asking the questions like who's at the table. It's like we need the the checks and balances and people who are putting the checks and balances in. And so, I, like the questions that I think that don't get asked enough is like who's not at the table, like and being mm-hmm. the person who's saying like, oh, actually, we're talking about feeding this community, but there's actually no one here from the community, or there's mm. do they want to be fed? What right. do they want to be fed? Right, exactly. <laughs> and like, so I think oftentimes as like a white person, our job is to be the check and balance of other white people, and to do and make sure you've done the the education and the self learning to be able to play that role, and to actually a lot of our role is to like step back and create a space for other people that have not had the space, you know, to step mm-hmm. into yeah. before. And so I don't, yeah, I don't really know. That's not really an answer to that question. Um, that helps. It really does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I think so when you arrived here, Rob, in terms of listening rather than mm-hmm. and asking and listening as opposed to, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. for me with like food system, again, of like the lenses that need to be applied, it's like right now we're farming at the expense of future generations. That's what I think of conventional farming. And so I think sure. it's like we need to be the framing needs to be we're feeding our, you know, immediate communities now, but mm-hmm. we're doing it for for future. Yeah, yeah. For the future generations, too. And like be again, being that check and balance of like, who are mm-hmm. we who is being hurt or at what expense is this being done and like how do we and that's like you know back to like so so much of indigenous philosophy around food is like reciprocity of like how do we create webs of reciprocity within Mm -hmm. our communities Mm -hmm. and within in like that view of of um and sustainability is an inbuilt (laughs) inbuilt to so many first nations agricultural practice it is not something that is uh needs to be it taught it it is inbuilt it's yeah so it's um there's there's a lot for us to to learn from our Indigenous cultures and their agricultural practice. Within the food pantry at Boston Medical Centre, is there space for a fermentary? Because I know this is something yes. that you are into. <laughs> uh, what do you, yeah, what, you, what do you love to eat? Well, that's the oh uh, most important thing. Um, I wish there was a space for a fermentary. <laughs> that's like my my dream has like always been to just... I know, I'm I, trying to figure out how to build one in my backyard. I know. <laughs> I'm like, all I want to do is actually just like open a pickle and sauerkraut business. No. <laughs> I would be there. I would be there. Um, do you export? <laughs> I know. I just, I love fermenting anything I can get my hands on um, for so many reasons. Some favorite recipes perhaps? Um... I mean, honestly, it's like whatever's in season that I have, yeah. I'm I'm adding salt to, and usually some garlic <laughs> and ginger, and um, gorgeous. But I've been doing some sweet potato. My partner actually started this sweet potato fly, yeah. which is like a sweet potato fermented Ooh. beverage, which 
was mind blowing. So I used like a, wow. a ginger bug. So what I would normally use to make ginger beer. And so you um, take your kind of, you grate up a bunch of sweet potato and you uh-huh. kind of soak that and actually squeeze out all of the liquid from that. You add a little uh-huh. bit of sugar, add the ginger bug into it and you ferment. It was ready as like, I think it was like a week or so, but it has okay. like this, I don't know if you've ever had wow. any like sweet potato beverages, but it has this like sil- no, this silkiness. Yeah. I'll send you the recipe because ah. it has has this, this yeah, mouth yeah. feel yes, like you've never you've n- I've never had a beverage feel like yeah. this in my mouth and then you know, like the, you know yeah. it's it's fermented so it's also got like a little bit of a sparkly yeah, effervescence yeah. to it yeah um so I might yeah try that in a kombucha sweet potato kombucha. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what it Rob tastes and I like have yeah. a, Rob yeah. sent me some mother some scobies nice. <laughs> into state for us to do yeah. that and then I've uh, re-gifted weird. them to somewhere <laughs> else but where we are um yeah are definitely into fermented drinks but I've never tried a sweet potato drink does mm-hmm. it uh does it matter which kind of uh, sweet potato flesh are you going for the orange flesh sweet potato the white the purple uh purple would probably be really fun I've I've only done it with the or we've only done with the orange um sweet okay, potato cool. that's what we have most access yeah. to so yeah. we can <laughs> um but yeah, fermented food. You, were, I think, Rob, you asked like, what are, what do I like to eat? Um, and yeah, favorite recipe. We we, oh. we ask all our guests this because I mean, we, we are yeah, we we love to bring it back also to the simplicity of cooking a dish for each other and and all those kind of things. So yeah, yeah. What, what what's what's your chill out meal? Oh God, that's so hard. <laughs> I feel like it's like just I go. I'm one of those. I don't know if you guys with cooking. I where I just go through phases where like all I want is like this. Ver- like I just I'm like oh I'm on a soup kick. Are they like oh I'm on uh-huh. a mm-hmm. I want a, you know grain based and then I want this so, you know and I go through phases yep. and so like now I'm in, it's cold here. I'm in like soup season. Um, nice and like winter squash mode. So I'm like doing a lot with winter squash. Um, Beautiful and um, but I'm, I'm the kind of person when I eat I want to have like. 10 different options so usually it's like a few different kind of yeah yeah yeah, like different kinds of pickled things and then like some I love sauces are probably like one of my favorite things to make it's just different whether it's a fermented sauce or just like whatever I love sauces and so I love and then I love texture obviously in food Uh so it's like something crunchy I usually am like some kind of toasted nuts on top and something crunchy I think this is a fantastic uh, way for for anyone who's eating it and dining at home that in terms of you've got your farm, fresh farm produce, if you've already got a a sauce and some crunchy things in your uh, dry pantry, you've got got a meal in less than five minutes. This is not rocket science. You've done all of the tasty work ahead of time. Mm. The fermenting has done all the tasty work ahead of time. It's um, it's a beautiful way to eat. That's one of the things I love about (laughs) fermenting is it actually is quite lazy because then you have like so many future meals where you're like, oh, I want to eat vegetables. But and you literally if you cook, you know, a thing of rice or farro and then you all you have to do is like either your piece of meat or whatever or your tofu or fry an egg and then a few different vegetables and you have a meal in fat literally five minutes that has so much more health benefits for you of the probiotics and more nutrients available and it's like yeah it's the gorgeous it's the gorgeous convenience food it, i mean yeah, in, totally. in the uk when i when we first started to do our version of a, of a fresh food pantry hmm. um we were taking quite a lot of all the fresh food we we're taking couscous and lentils and, all the, and we got known as the posh the posh food pantry and we're like no, 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 this is, this is really great value produce, really yeah. great nutrition, really easy to push together. Nutrient and, dense, budget and friendly. And cheaper yeah. in the long run than any of the other stuff out there. And yeah. it's a funny old label, but then, you know, know street where... food trucks were selling couscous oh, salads yeah. at, you know, 20 well, bucks now. a portion. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing. 
Yeah. Uh, I know that you're talking about convenience foods and you're talking about lazy foods. Lindsay, you and I had a recent in, uh, Instagram exchange. You were making gluten-free <laughs> pan au chocolat. This Ooh, is yeah. not lazy food. That's this is that, this is 24-hour food. That was like <laughs> more than I thought. I was yeah, that was that was because I love my partner who has celiac disease. That's, and that's yeah. a serious dough you had to make there. It was Oh, it, oh it, you should have seen them, Rob. It, maybe if you have mm. that, some of those images, maybe we could uh share oh, yeah. those for any of our gluten-free listeners. I know that there'll be some in my camp seeing as I'm also gluten-free. Yeah. Uh, but that those were it was very impressive. Thank you. It meant a lot that you appreciated <laughs> them. It was a labor of tr- of love for sure. That they and they honestly did turn out better than I thought because I was like, these are going to be crap. Like you, they they weren't. They were delicious. Um, yeah. So and it was fun. But I I've been I've definitely my partner has celiac, and so it's been this new. Nice. Before meeting him, I was like an avid for years sourdough perfecting the perfect loaf and like love baking (laughs) and so it's been kind of it's been really cool actually dating being with him and having like these these challenges kind of perimeters that have to be put on that creative problem solving yeah Yeah. and that it just has you would thrive (laughs) yeah it just puts me in different places that I wouldn't normally go with food and I and then it's like that like gluten-free baking is just like that much more rewarding when it actually turns out good because it was so much harder to get there well I'll have to exchange with you a recipe by my friend Anthony Silvio he has a brown rice fermented sourdough which is gluten-free um so I'll pass that on to you Um, we would like to see you picture that because we've got a previous guest who's also oh, yes, into the sourdough, who's a sourdough, and, sourdough and, but and not hasn't gluten quite worked free. out the gluten-free yet so <laughs> I, 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 there's a guest competition going on all right sign me up really i'm it. highly yeah. competitive <laughs> really and in terms of uh of restrictive eating but creative problem solving a vegetarian and a celiac living in the same house together some yeah. people for that some people that would sound like a nightmare for me that sounds Tomato like salad. the best dinner party ever <laughs> because it means i get to do as you say lots of little things and make sure that everyone's one's going away happy yeah has it been a challenge it's it's easier than people think right I I honestly it has been it's like I he he luckily doesn't eat that much meat but I also am a vegetarian that likes cooking meat like I'm fine cooking meat for him if he wants um but no, it's it's not. It hasn't been that hard. We had. Yeah. It's like it's, if you get all of the the kind of resources, it's taken a while for me to like build up my gluten free pantry. I feel like of yeah. like and flour blends and like coming up with the right mm-hmm. blends and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I've I totally enjoyed the, the challenge, and I don't actually feel like it's been that much of a challenge. Like there's occasionally, I think the only times where you're like, especially in pandemic, where you're like, I want to have a little bit more lazy food time sometimes. Yeah. And like where it can't, you do have to take the extra step or sometimes things take a little bit longer or like I can't just like pop a pizza in the oven yeah (laughs) um and so there are those moments um yeah but no for the most part we've been really into so we he actually has a a gluten-free sourdough starter and we do a lot of that's wonderful and actually we don't actually make bread with it It, but we do like a lot of like savory pancakes or we'll throw veggies in it for and they're just it's like the easiest lunch that's so delicious Mm. and yeah it's probably my favorite end of week fridge anything exactly (laughs) yes (laughs) Uh, Uh, we could talk forever i know i'm just Uh, realizing i have so many more questions so Um, we may have to do a follow-up in season two or season three but um you have been an 
absolute delight, mm. Lindsay. Oh, it's um, been so fun. If you ever fun. get out here, we can cook together and eat together. And if we ever get out there, we're definitely doing a farm tour. Absolutely. And maybe we could all cook together on the rooftop or something. Yeah. Just thank you for being you, Lindsay. It sounds like you're making a huge amount of difference and having the purpose that you've got is, is amazing. Um, and thanks to your mum for <laughs> inspiring you uh, on, on a garden um, not too many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you so much, so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you both for all the good work you're doing in the world as well. <laughs> thank Take you. Care. Enjoy right. your weekend, Lindsay. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. How inspired do you feel, Rob? Oh, look, she was another amazing guest that has, uh, you know, I want to be in her team. Yes, you know? please let us join your your tribe. Let us be a part of your people, Lindsay, because you are an absolute delight. I know that we covered a lot of topics, but I feel like we could have, I say hours, but days, weeks. Uh, there is so much that I would love to learn from Lindsay and yeah. uh just re- the way she connects people and connects topics and connects issues and sees the big picture and sees how it is possible to create positive change, mm. both on a small local scale as well as mm. big international. And purpose has clearly been part of her drive, as, as as we said there at the end. You know, since since she was a teenage girl and gardening, uh-uh, gardening, nine, gardening with chained herself nine, to a tree. Nine, yeah, nine, yeah, <laughs> nine year old. Uh, that's and that's amazing. So it's it's always been part of her spirit to do that. What I really loved, what what I learned specifically from that was yeah, around the hospital. But joining up the dots in the hospital, you know, to have the farmers market in the hospital, to have you know, as well as the farm on the top, to they and and the fact that they culturally as a hospital, yes, and the team get the pride, it. Now they make, the value, yeah, the celebration. The that is that's that's key, and that's key whether it be medium, small, large organisations. But don't forget, there was also a sixteen-year-old son of somebody uh-huh. at the very top of that tree that also said, "You should make this happen." Yeah, and um, and that spark in 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 their parent to say, "Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is the right future proofing that we need yeah. that we need to do." Yes, let's and, look through our younger communities' mm-hmm. lens and listen and take on board their concerns, their visions. They are inheriting what we are creating currently. So, how about and, let's future proof it for them? Yeah, and we shouldn't be frightened of doing what is blatantly simply the right thing to do. And not uh-huh. just in food. This could be in many other things. Oh, just yeah. Do, just do the right thing, people. Yeah, <laughs> it shouldn't take so much of a fight and a battle. These are, as we said, uh, often stemming from ideas and uh, traditions and ritual and mm. science that existed for over 65,000 plus years. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's already there. The yeah. hard work's been done. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> so I think, I think that, that hospital is part of... What sounds like again that perfect storm, if you like, for Boston. Uh-huh. They're eager to be the best. They've yeah. got the right leadership, from it sounds like already within within old mayors and new mayors coming in. Um, Lindsay sounds you know upbeat and full of hope around what a new administration can bring or gain, although it might not be perfect. Um, so there's a there's a movement and momentum there that I think could give her the scale that she's after and uh, and young blood interns working on the farm so it's a very exciting time for her 
And I don't know yet how it's possible, but I'm definitely going to put it out there that uh, hopefully we can we can get Lindsay on board to collaborate on something here. Hmm. Um, I, I know it's not going to be immediate, but there is definitely rooftop space available within our windy, sunny continent um, for us to be to be utilizing all of these rooftop urban spaces better to be feeding communities local locally better um, and uh, yeah it's uh, we've been we've been asked numerous times at cultivating community and, and moving feast around well look you're asking for all this extra urban urban space to grow where can we do it well well first of all there is a huge amount available on the ground still uh-huh. yes uh, certainly within the public housing but we keep saying look at the rooftops look uh-huh. at the space think about this should be um, this should be the norm in yeah. decision making around planning and it should definitely be a, a requirement of any new construction that is going on, whether it's uh, residential to have a community shared space uh, of, of a food garden or whether it is a, a building that is mostly tenanted or, or something like that. But there, every new construction should have an environmental responsibility, not being just a ticker Absolutely. box, but taking action in this direction. Um, and as we see, the goodness that comes out of connecting with the earth and with each other, it can only build for nicer, catalyst. greater, yeah. more yeah. wonderful communities in itself, yeah. more accepting, more celebratory of one another. It's absolutely um, the catalyst for change, food. It, it, we know we would say this, wouldn't we, you and I, but all our guests echo it. You know, It just brings people together and starts the movement, the momentum over food, over conversation, over meals, over growing, um, yeah, that can can build the therapeutic change, can improve the mental health. can, And from when those improvements come, more change can happen in other areas. It, it, it's just a logical step on where to start to feed ourselves well and correctly and to grow our food in the most sustainable, logical and in, way. And in terms of attaching to a, uh, a medical facility, the Boston Medical oh. Centre, as disease prevention, as yep. uh, symptom prevention, as self-care, um, you, be- you as an individual become so much less of a strain on the health system. Absolutely. And if we can imagine all of those funds being redistributed into as we mentioned, learning our true history, learning uh, cultural and agricultural methods that have been around for so long to future-proof and and to look into sustainability. And and those funds will be able to be redistributed, not immediately, but it it will continue to build momentum. Quality investment now, it doesn't matter what government of whatever colour it is, quality investment now will improve and save long term absolutely Absolutely. um and then we wouldn't be worried about how many beds we need during a pandemic because their beds would be free (laughs) their beds would be available now uh i know i mentioned i I sort of jokingly said that we can't clone Lindsay. she actually is a twin as close as it can get to (laughs) currently existing clones and her partner is a twin how amazing that i i i find that fascinating i don't know if there is a twin dating agency or something that that, that makes that happen or how how that works or if just a shared lived experience uh, draws people together like so many other very sweet indeed um and she built her own home for 500 dollars a cob tiny home 
Yes, and, and look, I had to look up some of the some of the Cobb homes. On, There's not on, a lot in on, Australia. On the Google. There's not a lot, um, and they're basically for people that don't know who, who may be like me. Um, although you're probably listening to this episode, you probably do understand it more. Um, they're little hobbit houses, <laughs> uh, and look they amazing. do come on greater scale than hobbit size. I believe yeah. that I wouldn't have to duck through some of these doorways that we're yeah. we're looking at right now. But I am scared that if I'd show my husband, Eric will want to build one of these at some point but if it (laughs) it serves the purpose of a fermentary on my property maybe I'm all for it maybe I'll be in support of this and I would not mind getting my hands muddy to to build it either brilliant idea (laughs) and she did that for 500 us dollars yeah yeah amazing absolutely amazing um, we also glossed over that she speaks functional Swahili. This is something that I feel like many people back in MySpace days or beyond would have just ticked box thinking that it was a cool, fun thing to say. But this is actually a skill on mm. Lindsay's CV, mm. which mm. is extensive in itself. Um, she's also got a master's in agroforestry, which we didn't specifically talk about, no. <laughs> but all adds to her richness in terms of her, uh, her approach to all things farming. If you do want to find out more about uh, where Lindsay's working and what she's doing, uh, she is on Instagram. You can follow her, Lindsay Allen. Um, She also uh, images of the farm and the work that she's doing. And as I said this year, there were uh, virtual tours of the farm. So if you can't be there, if it is still going to be a while between travel restrictions being eased virtually is our next best thing and it is an absolute joy and delight walking around that farm Uh, so it's the boston medical center you can google that uh she's also um available on there's various articles um written about it the hospital rooftop farm and uh, some of the the beautiful drone imagery of this farm it's it's quite extraordinary to see this lush green amongst the city scape. Mm. <laughs> that is definitely my vision for a city future. Oh, it'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? Oh. And so, and the fact that they've even considered like curated the space so that from wherever you are in the clinic building, you can see and be inspired by it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that said, attention as, to detail. And as she says, you know, there's evidence that shows even if you're overlooking and looking at that green space, your mental health will improve. Yeah. Um, so the more opportunity for it to happen, um, the, the the better. Um, please, listeners, tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us, do whatever it is that you need to do to communicate with us. We would love to hear from you. Share the podcast as much as you possibly can. Uh, and we know and we're you, not great at asking, but if you no. could leave five stars and a review <laughs> on wherever you listen to your podcast, that's actually going to help us to be able to put together a season two of our podcast um subscribe like share um whether it's the topic or the individual that we're interviewing that piques your interest that you think that uh, a friend or a colleague may need to listen to or like to listen to or um just to add value to their day there is some incredible things going on in food systems in future proofing food systems around the world and we're so grateful that we can be the conduit between them and you. Um, and <laughs> let us know your favourite pickle recipe. Oh, yes, <laughs> fermenting, pickling. Do you have a favourite, Rob? 
Oh, look, uh, as, as we said, look, I'm, I'm heavy in the kombucha. Uh, I've done pickled radishes quite a bit. Um, there's a pickled cucumber recipe that we did uh, on a kitchen challenge. We did a really lovely um, Somalian Ethiopian meal at one of our kitchen challenges out at Dandenong um, uh-huh. because the majority of the group um, came from that background where we had cucumbers in um, a variety of herbs and spices, uh, vinegars and sugars. And they, they were really loved. And again, only take a week. Um, so they weren't, where, they weren't like the dill pickle type stuff. Yeah. Um, that was really, really gorgeous and lifted some, was just a really lovely compliment with some lovely slow cooked lamb that was just literally flaked and yogurt. And that was, that was a dish. It was gorgeous. I um, adore creating my own pickles and then it serves the uh, dual purpose of once all of the <laughs> the content has been eaten. I often use that as the dressing starter or mm-hmm. as a deglazer mm-hmm. for any kind of um, roast veggies or roast meats or things like that to add that acidity. But I also know that because I use um, uh, non-sugar type sweeteners that yep. it's it's not adding anything there. My, my blood sugar is going to remain stable. Um, I'd, I'd heard a, l- a number of people have done, been doing it in some of the lockdown hotels here in Australia. Some of yeah, where where they've been in lockdown. So two week uh, quarantine uh, it oh, becomes quarantine. a fermentary. Yeah, four four weeks quarantine for those on four weeks where some have ordered in just and they and they've got the luxury of being able to cook a few things. They've literally ordered enough things just to do some quick pickling. That's like a week long. So when the meals that have been delivered that are part of the quarantine system come, yeah. just to lift them a little bit later, a little bit, a little bit more, they've been putting a, you know, a spoonful of pickled radish, cabbage, whatever it might be, and a little bit of like you just said, a little of the the, 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 the juice, the, the pickling liquid, the juice as a vinaigrette, and it's been just lifting their taste buds during during a lockdown. So it's I adore how, that. How it's yeah proactive approach mm. to not only busying oneself but the mental health aspect yeah. of it and the yeah because it, it's got to be t- a lot of people are got to be doing it tough in some yeah. of these oh. isolated spaces but yes. to be to be still cooking i love that mm. yeah. <laughs> what a great episode i'm, thank I'm you. delighted thank you i'm still working on your nicknames Mm. Um, I'll come back to you next episode with some some newbies. But I'm also willing to take suggestions from any of our listeners. Rob Dog, Robinator. Whatever. Take care. Have a good weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.